This morning, what I wanted to do was share a bit of a spiritual adventure that I've been on over the course of the last year or so that actually began nearly a decade ago. You see, I was living in my home state of Colorado when I got a call from my aunt up in Sitka, Alaska, that my uncle had gone out scuba diving, and when he came to the surface, he was dead. And it turned her world upside down. And she desperately needed somebody in the family to give her a hand with a bed and breakfast. And being one of the only people with a flexible schedule, I traveled up to Alaska and I spent several summers. And during those summers, I met some rather unforgettable people, one of whom was a tall, strapping Alaskan by the name of Leif. You see, I was signing books in a church cafe when he came in and he bought not just one, but two copies of my book, which should have been a sign that there was some sort of interest, except that I'm kind of like Dory from the movie Finding Nemo. Hi! And so the moment passed, but eventually I caught on to the idea that wherever I went in Sitka, there was Leif. And it probably would have been a little bit disconcerting, a little uncomfortable, a little downright creepy, except that in Sitka, Alaska, there's only about 14 miles of road from end to end. So this is a tiny town where people live in like a fishbowl existence. You see the same people when you go to the grocery store, the post office, the gas station. And so wherever I go, there is life. And so we start hanging out and pretty soon we become friends. And one day, I remember my aunt set me down and she said, Margaret, I really think that this guy likes you. And I said, what makes you say that? And he said, well, he just brought you breakfast and you're staying at a bed and breakfast. (laughs) Oh. So we start hanging out a little bit more. And after about knowing each other only about four or five weeks, it's time for me to pack up and head back to Colorado. But before I did, Leif sat me down, he looked me straight in the eye, and he said, Margaret, I would like to ask you to consider moving to Alaska to pursue a relationship to become my wife. (laughs) Wow, way to let it all hang out. And then I began thinking, ooh, I am so not moving to Alaska for a boy. (laughs) Would you move to the Yukon for a boy? I mean, I'm thinking, ooh, like they make movies out of people who do things like that. (laughs) Starring Sandra Bullock. (laughs) And so I packed up. I headed back to Colorado, but Leif continues calling and pursuing me. And about two months later, my cousin was getting married off a small island in Washington. And when she did, Leif had come down before the wedding, and my mom had come up for the wedding. And over a long meal, my mom really got to know Leif. And I remember at the end of that evening, she looked me in the eye and she said, Margaret, this guy is amazing, and you are such a fool if you don't give this relationship a chance. And so I listened to my mom, I packed up, I moved to Alaska, and nine months later, I married my stalker. (laughs) And the tall man who you will see on your way out back there running the PowerPoint is the man whom I love and serve and adore. But the second unforgettable person that I met during those summers in Alaska was one of the guests who came through the bed and breakfast, and her name was Lynn. And I remember over freshly brewed coffee and hot, fresh-baked scones, we were talking about life and our journeys when I randomly asked her what she did in her free time. And she said, I am a shepherdess. 
And I was like, a what? And she said, I'm a shepherdess. Like you take care of sheep? Yeah, in your backyard? Like I'm trying to imagine what this looks like. And she begins to describe how in her home outside of Portland, Oregon, she has both an upper and a lower field. And she takes care of several dozen sheep. This is her pastime, her passion, what she loves to do. And as she is talking, I am instantly thinking of some scriptures that I want to ask her about, but I also don't want to sound like one of those people. And so I'm trying to land the bumpy plane of conversation smoothly, and I just opt for the crash landing. And I'm like, well, sometimes I read this book called The Bible. And in it, there is this writer named John And in chapter 10, he describes how God is like a shepherd and we're like sheep. And just as a shepherd cries out to a sheep and the sheep come running, so too God cries out to us and we have the opportunity to respond in obedience. Does that really happen when you're spending time with your flock? And she says yes. And then she begins to describe the day in and day out care of her animals. And as she is talking, my spirit is coming alive. Well, that morning conversation eventually came to a close, and it was time for Lynn and her husband, Tom, to travel on to their next stop in Alaska. But before she left the bed and breakfast, she looked at me and she said, Margaret, you seem to be really interested in this whole topic of sheep and spirituality, and I've actually been collecting some magazine and newspaper articles on this very topic. Would you like me to send them to you? And I said, that would be amazing. But I honestly thought that she would forget, because how often have I made well-meaning promises and totally dropped the ball? But about four weeks later, I received an envelope in the mail. And when I opened it up and I began looking at these articles, again, my spirit came alive, and I thought, one day, I am going to write about this. But that was nearly 10 years ago. Multiple moves, not only within the great state of Alaska, but also back to Colorado, where I can say it's good to be back in America. And the spring before last, I remember I was going through one of the drawers in my office, and as I did, I stumbled on Lynn's folder. And when I began rereading those articles, I thought, now is the time to write about this. But how to track down Lynn? I mean, how to track down a woman who I had only met once nearly 10 years ago? Well, I decided to use a little device invented by Al Gore, better known as the Internet, and a search engine by the name of Google. And I tracked down Lynn's phone number, and I remember I completely cold-called her. And the conversation went something like this. Hi, my name is Margaret, and I met you nearly 10 years ago when you were traveling through Alaska and you stopped in Sitka and stayed in a bed and breakfast. And over hot coffee and warm scones, we talked about sheep. Do you remember me? And she's like, no. (laughs) Awesome. But by the end of that conversation, she was gracious enough to invite Leif and I up to her home outside of Portland, Oregon, to spend time with her and her flock. And from there, we traveled and spent time with a farmer in Nebraska, a beekeeper in southern Colorado, and finally a vintner in Napa Valley, California. And with each of these individuals, I would open up the scripture, and I would ask, how do you read this passage? Not as a theologian, but in light of what you do every day. Their answers changed the way that I read the Bible forever. And it became the foundation for a book called Scouting the Divine, My Search for God in Wine, Wool, and Wild Honey.
Why scout the divine? Because there are so many days in my own spiritual journey when I open up the scripture and I read the stories and passages and I wanna connect, really I do. And yet when I close the book, it feels like the stories are thousands of miles away, thousands of years, distant cultures. As much as I want to connect, I end up leaving hungrier spiritually than when I even started. It's like the picture that I have in my mind's eye is that of a huge panel of stained glass. And it's like over time the dust has collected and how desperately I need the Holy Spirit to come in and just wipe away that dust so that I can once again stand in wonder and awe of all of who our God is and all that he has done. And so this morning, I just wanted to share just a couple of the gems that I discovered in my journey of scouting the divine. And the first came rather early. Because you see, I knew that before I ever got on a plane to go and spend time in Oregon with Lynn, that I had a little bit of homework to do. And so I began going through the entire Bible and looking up every single place where sheep and shepherds and flocks are mentioned. There are quite a few. Sheep literally graze their way through the pages of scripture. In Genesis, we discover that the original conflict between Cain and Abel was a conflict of an offering, one the gift of the field and the other the gift of the flock. While the Bible doesn't specifically tell us that Noah placed sheep on the ark, I have a hunch that he did. Why? Because many of his descendants, some of Israel's greatest leaders, all took care of sheep. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, not to mention that shepherd boy king, David. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the presence of sheep used in everyday life, as well as used as imagery for the prophets to communicate God's heart to his people. This continues throughout the Old, right into the New, where at the birth of Christ, the shepherds were included on that very short RSVP list to the birth of Jesus. And when that infant grows up and he enters three years of earthly ministry, time and time again in the parables that he tells and the stories that he teaches, he places sheep as characters in those stories. Even after his death and resurrection and the birth of the church, we are encouraged to pastor or pasture the flock of God. This imagery continues all the way to the closing of Revelation, where we find John on the island of Patmos having those psychedelic apocalyptic visions. And time and time again, he keeps talking about seeing a lamb. And with so many mentions of sheep in the Bible, it raises the question that maybe, just maybe, I get need to get to know these woolly creatures a little bit better. And so I got on a plane and I traveled to Oregon. And when I arrived at Lynn's house, she greeted me warmly and she asked, do you want to go and see the sheep? And I said, yeah, let's go. And so we put on these big, thick boots because if you've ever been to the Pacific Northwest, you know that it rains a lot. And I began following her up this muddy trail up to the upper pasture. And as we're walking, we're talking, and I'm watching her. And as we would walk, she would carefully open each gate. And once we would pass through, she would close it. And as we began approaching the top of the hill, I began to have a familiar Bible passage come alive in a whole new way. For those of you who have your Bibles, I would love for you to come to John chapter 10. Because in John chapter 10, 
what we read about, if you back up into chapter 9, is that there are a whole lot of religious leaders who are surrounding Jesus. And they're asking him, are we not getting it? Are we completely blind? And it's like Jesus says, yepers. And in John chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus uses shepherding imagery in order to open their eyes. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. And so here I am on this muddy path and watching Lynn carefully open and close these gates, and we finally reach the very top, the very crest of the hill. And we look out, and across the landscape, there are these sheep that look like large cotton balls on the horizon. And all of a sudden, Lynn looks at me, and she begins whispering. And I look at her, and I go, Lynn, why are we whispering? And she says, Margaret, Because at the very first sound of my voice, they will all come running. And with that, she simply said, sheep, sheep, sheep. And the entire flock bolted toward her. And in that moment, I recognize that John chapter 10 is not just a metaphor. It is not just a word picture. It is the way that sheep are wired. You see, a sheep is wired, it is designed, it is created to respond to the voice of its shepherd, just as you and I are wired and designed and created to respond to the voice of God in our lives. Are there things that you and I can do to make it more difficult to hear from God? Absolutely. We can choose to run to the far edge of the field. We can choose to try to poke our head through the mesh gate. We can choose to bury our head in the tall grass. But if you and I are actively seeking to hear God's voice in our lives, then make no mistake, as the good shepherd, he will ensure that we hear from him. But it's not just that the sheep are wired and designed to hear the shepherd's voice. You see, there's something more. Because I followed Lynn back down that muddy path. And as I did, she just began introducing me to the flock that surrounded us. She would literally look at a sheep and she would say, this sheep over here is Opal. And she's a little bit of an over-possessive mom because she had a difficult pregnancy. And if you listen to her bleat or her baa, she has a bit of a raspy voice. And I was like, really? I had no idea. And this sheep, this sheep over here is Iris. And you have to keep an eye on her because if you ever leave one of the gates slightly open, she is the first one who's going to escape. But on a warm and sunny day, she's also the first to come and lay down on my lap. And this one, this one over here is Maggie. And Maggie is a grandmother of sheep. She's actually 13. And for the Shetlands in this area, that's a really old age. And if you know Maggie, you know that when she gets mad, she stomps her foot. But she is also loving and kind. And as Lynn, the shepherdess, is describing her flock, I can't help but think of Psalm 139 and the way that God describes us, how he knows us intimately inside and out, how he knows our strengths and our weaknesses, our personalities and our quirks, and he loves us just as we are. 
But as we make our way down that path and we start entering the barn area, Lynn just starts going about her daily chores. She starts adding to the grain and replenishing the hay and adding to the water. And as she's doing this, the flock is gathered right behind her. And she starts talking to them. And she says, Maggie, hold on just a minute. I'm going to get your medicine. And Iris, just a moment, you're going to get your grain. And as she's doing this, suddenly what I began to realize is that she was speaking specifically to individual sheep without ever turning around. You see, it's not just that the sheep recognize the shepherd's voice, but that the shepherd recognizes the individual voices of her sheep. And I don't know about you guys, but there are times in my own spiritual journey when I start to question and I start to wonder, God, did you hear me? Did you not hear me? There are times that I cry out to God in prayer for specific things, asking God to heal, to restore, to redeem, to reconcile. And it's like things keep falling apart anyway. And I ask the question, God, did you even hear me? And yet my time with Lynn, the shepherdess, reminded me that God does not miss a single word. There is not a syllable, a consonant, a vowel that we offer up to him in prayer that he does not hear. And as the good shepherd, he is the one who promises to lead us to still waters to restore our soul. Indeed, our God is the good shepherd. The second stop that I wanted to highlight in my journey of scouting the divine was to go and spend time with a beekeeper in southern Colorado. Now, some of you are thinking, Margaret, totally tracking with the sheep. They're all over the Bible. But why would you go and spend time with a beekeeper? Well, if you look in the scripture, you will find nearly 70 references to bees and honey and honeycomb throughout the Bible. And nearly 20 of them all refer to the same thing the promised land as a land overflowing with milk and honey. The very first time that this appears in the scripture is found in Exodus chapter 3, that incredible moment when Moses encounters God in the form of a burning bush that is on fire, but it doesn't burn up. And in that place, God gives Moses a specific calling, a specific purpose. And in Exodus 3, 8, he tells Moses that it's not just that I'm going to call you to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, but I'm also going to tell you where I'm going to have you lead them to. And in Exodus 3.8, Moses says this, So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to the good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this description of the promised land becomes the marquee, like the hallmark descriptor of the promised land, which is kind of intriguing because after the Israelites get out of Egypt, they wander in the desert for 40 years, oy vey, and they finally reach the border of the promised land. Moses suddenly becomes like the savvy real estate broker. He's like, I'm going to send out some people to check out the land. We want to know the square footage, the number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms, and bring back some samples. And so he sends in some spies into the promised land. And when they come back around numbers 13, numbers 14 and there, they have these two guys and they have this huge pole and they have this gargantuan cluster of grapes dropping down between them. And they show up and they have like these state fair prize winning pomegranates. And they have these uber sweet figs. But there is not a drop of honey or milk between them. And so it raises the question, of all the descriptors of the promised land, 
Why then is it described as the land overflowing with milk and honey? Well, I traveled to southern Colorado to spend time with a veteran beekeeper by the name of Gary. This is a man who has taken care of bees for more than 40 years. This is a man who has survived something called colony collapse disorder. Any of you familiar with that? Read about it? It describes the dying off of bees that is taking place not only in the United States and Canada, but around the world. Now, for those of you who are allergic to bees, you hear about bees dying, and you're probably like, whoop, whoop, and I would totally be with you, except for one little problem. The bees are necessary in order to pollinate many of our favorite food sources. So, for instance, without bees, we don't have almonds. Without bees, there are a lot of berries and beans that we can't enjoy. Without beans, you can say adios to the guacamole at your favorite Mexican restaurant and that one hurts. And so you see how the bees are so important for our world. And when I first met Gary three years earlier, he had had over half of his bees die in a single winter. The following year, he'd had another third of them die, and he was in the process of just rebuilding. And so I sit down with this man who has taken care of hives for decades and decades, who has survived this awful death of his bees, who knows the inside of a hive, inside and out. I open up Exodus 3, and I ask him, why do you think the promised land is described as a land overflowing with milk and honey? And he says, Margaret, in order to understand that, you need to understand something about a beehive. And so I would like for all of you to turn on the discovery channel of your brains. Because in a modern beehive, in one of those sets of white frame boxes that you might see driving down the road in the country, there are somewhere between 50 and 75,000 bees. Now, the most famous of all of these bees is the queen bee. And she is not called the queen bee because she rules over all of the other bees. She is called the queen bee because she has babies all day, every day. Owie. <laughs> Shortly after she is born, she goes on her maiden voyage in which she is impregnated by the boy or the male bees of the hive. Then she comes back to the hive and begins laying her eggs. At that point, the boy or the drone bees have served their purpose in the hive, and then they are booted out. No spiritual parallels there. <laughs> but the queen bee continues laying eggs, and there are literally tens of thousands of other bees in the hive. So for instance, you have the queen attendant bees, and their sole purpose is to take care of the needs of the queen. And then you have the nurse bees, and their sole purpose is to take care of the baby larva. And then you have the hunter-gatherer bees. And these are the bees that go far and wide in order to get the nectar and pollen and bring it back to the hive. You also have the water-gathering bees, which I'm always intrigued by because I've never seen a bee flying with a five-gallon bucket. And so if you are a bee and your job is to get water, you literally fly out, you find a water source, you drink as much as you can, you come back to the hive, and you go bleh, bleh, and you hope that the five-second rule doesn't apply. <laughs> and then you also have the fanning bees, 
And these are the bees who on particularly hot days will then stand in front of that pool of water and they will flap their wings and in the process they will create a natural air conditioning system. And on a very cold day, they will stand there not in front of the pool of water and flap their wings and they will create a natural cool uh, heating system. Which is why if you go and you visit a hive, whether it is in Africa or in Alaska, you will always find the interior of a beehive being maintained at around 97 degrees. And all I can think is, how awesome is our God? But some of my favorite bees in the hive are the guard bees. These are the ones that I nicknamed the Charlie Angels bees. And they hang outside of the hive, and their sole purpose is to protect the golden treasure inside from any intruders who might want to steal it. And then there are the mortuary bees. And I kind of imagine these guys with like black capes and like the junior birdman mask. And their sole purpose is to remove any death and disease from the hive. And as I'm thinking about this, I can't help but see the parallels between the beehive and the body of Christ. How just as when every bee fulfills its proper role and function, what natural sweetness abounds, so too in our own lives, when we fulfill the role and the purpose God has for us, how we naturally flavor the world with the goodness of God. And so I'm sitting there listening to Gary, and I think, this is awesome. But what does this have to do with Exodus chapter 3? So turn off the Discovery Channel for a moment. Because, Gary says, Margaret, in order for a land to overflow with milk and honey, it means that every single bee in all of those hives within the land is all working within their proper order and function. And that's not just happening within the hives, that's actually happening throughout the land. Because for the hives to overflow with honey, it means that the winter snows don't come too late, nor do they come too early. It means that the summer sun doesn't beat down so hot and heavy that all of the vegetation wilts, nor is it so light that they cannot thrive. But in a land that overflows with milk and honey, everything is working within its proper order. And when Gary said that, I had a shift in my own heart. Because growing up, hearing about a land overflowing with milk and honey, I would almost trip over the word overflowing, thinking that the promised land that God had for me is a land where God wants to give me more. And Gary said, no, the more is merely a byproduct of things working in their proper order and function. And when we begin living in the promised land that God has for us, we will discover that we are the people who are grateful for the age and stage that God has placed us in, no matter what season that may be. But if we're here in college having the opportunity to grow and learn, that we would take advantage of that and say, Lord, help me learn everything I need to know for what you have for me later on. For others who might be married, it's the opportunity to look in the eyes of the one that you've married and say, thank you for the opportunity to love and to serve this person. For those who have children, it's the opportunity to look and say, thank you, God, for this ability to raise these little ones up in the ways of the Lord. For those who are in a season of retirement or empty nest, that we would be grateful for this time to give back and to serve. That no matter what season in life that we're in, that we would recognize that God has a role, a purpose, a function for us. And when we are doing that, we are living in the promised land that God has for us. 
And the final stop that I wanted to highlight in my journey of scouting the divine was to go and spend time with a vintner in Napa Valley, California. Now, some of you may be wondering, why go and spend time with a vintner? Others of you already know. It was amazing. And so I traveled to California. And when I did, I spent time with a vintner by the name of Christoph, who took care of several boutique vineyards. And he was an intriguing guy because he had graduated from Wheaton, become Eastern Orthodox, and met and married a woman at his college that had the same exact first and last name as his mom. And I thought, how strange is that? And so I sit down with him, and we start going through the scriptures and looking up all the references to wines and vines and grapes throughout the scripture. And there are nearly 300 throughout the Old Testament and the New. Did you know that shortly after Noah got off of the ark, he planted a vineyard, and then he fell off of the wagon because he drank too much? We find throughout the Old Testament that many of Israel's greatest leaders all had vineyards or had people who took care of them for them. Throughout the Old Testament, God used the prophets in order to communicate his heart using vine and vineyard imagery, which is kind of intriguing because the scripture is very clear that drunkenness is forbidden. So why then would God choose to use that imagery? Well, it's interesting because modern archaeologists have discovered that in some of the plots of land in ancient Israel, there are still traces of vines that grew in people's yards. In other words, God using vineyard imagery would be like God using the very plants that grow in our own front or backyards in order to communicate his heart to us. But I think that of all the passages in scripture, the one that is the most clear is found in John chapter 15, when Jesus comes right out and he says it. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And I had read that passage many times. And one of the images that comes out of that is that picture of pruning. And I don't know about you guys, but when I think about pruning, I'm not like, ooh, 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 front of the line. Like I'm the one who's doing like the slip out the back door. Because pruning is not something that I really want. I'm actually quite afraid of it. In fact, if I'm really honest about pruning, the picture that I have in my mind is almost of like God pulling out this huge sword. And here I am as this vine that's growing up, and he looks and he goes, wow, there's an area of sin. Whack. And then he goes, and this, I don't even know what that wild vine is. Whack. And he says, oh, that doesn't need to be there. Whack. And that, ooh, no. And he sits there and he cuts back and back and back until by the time he's done, there is nothing more than this little short stubby vine left. And maybe then, just then, God can do something good with me. And when I described this image that I had to Christoph, he looked at me and he said, Margaret, that is not how we prune vines in Napa Valley. (laughs) He said, when we want to prune vines, we actually use something like this. And I looked at these little guys and I thought, wow, cuticle clippers. And he began to describe how he goes out to his little vineyards 
And he will go through and handle every single cluster of grapes three to four times during the growing season. And he'll bring his pruning shears and he'll cut back just a leaf and just a little bit of branch so that every single grape on each cluster receives the right amount of sunlight and aeration, not just for maximum fruitfulness, but for maximum distinctive flavor. And when he described that, I began to have a whole new understanding of pruning with God. And I said, God, if that's the way you prune, have your way with me. Trim me back, cut me back. You are the master vintner. But the second image that is so clear in that passage is John 15, is the idea of abiding. And I often thought, okay, if I'm going to abide in Jesus, and I've heard sermons on this many times, and that means like where the branch comes out and the vine and there's grapes. Well, basically, if I can just kind of like stay plugged into Jesus, just connected to Jesus, then it will all be okay. And while there is truth in that, as I began to discover more about viticulture or the growing of grapes, I began to get a bigger, deeper understanding of that. You see, I always thought that if I wanted to grow really great grapes, that I should use seeds. And Christoph said, no, you actually use shoots. And the very first year that you go out, you take those shoots and you plant them, and they grow up. And at the end of that first year, you go back and you cut them back. And the second year, they're going to grow up a little bit taller, but at the end of that second year, you go again and you cut them back. And the third year, they grow up a little bit taller, and they start to produce their very first grapes. But you don't take those grapes. You actually cut them back again. And that fourth year, they grow up and they produce lots of grapes. And that is the very first year that you can bring in a harvest. And if you are a winemaker in Napa Valley, California, you will take that harvest, you will process it, you will bottle it, and you will not taste the very first fruit of your labor until year seven. And because of the high cost of land, financially, you will not reach a break-even point until year 16, 18, or 20. And when Christoph described that, suddenly I had that shift in my mind. God's calling to abide in me is not just for today or tomorrow, but he takes a long-term perspective. There are times when I cry out to God and I go, God, why am I not more productive right now? Why am I not more fruitful? It's like the Spirit is saying, Margaret, because the harvest that I want to bring forth in you isn't for another 10 or 20 or 30 years, but will you choose to remain faithful and abide in me? And again, I find myself saying, Lord, have your way with me. But it's not just in the growing up of the vine, it's actually in the very soil that it was planted. You see, I always thought that if I wanted to grow really great vines, that I'd go down to the hardware store and I'd get one of those like miracle grow kind of bags of fertilizer, the kind that like you stick your finger in and they grow two inches. And I described this to Christoph and he said, Margaret, no. If you want to grow really great grapes, the really high quality ones with a distinctive flavor, you don't use rich, lush soil. You use rocky, stony soil. Did you know that there is a winery in France called Chateau Latif in which they grow their vines in 75% gravel? And there are days that the vintner goes out and he looks at the ground and he says, it is not rocky enough. And he will actually take rocks and he will plant them in the soil. And when Christoph described that, suddenly I had a shift again in my heart. 
because there are times in my life when I look down and I have these rocks, I have these stones, I have these difficult areas, and I beg God for them to move, to change, to be removed. I empty my evangelical charismatic bag of tricks trying to get rid of them. And it's like the Spirit is saying, Margaret, don't you know that that difficult area is the very thing which I am going to use to produce the flavor of my son in your life? And again, I think, God, have your way with me. You are the master vintner, and I want to choose to abide in you, to submit to your pruning when and where it may come. Why does God reveal himself in such earthy metaphors and images? Why does he reveal himself in so many different ways? Part of the reason is that I think that there is not a single image or metaphor that can contain the awesome wonder of our God. But the second reason, I think, is that there are days in my own life when I need to know God in each of these ways. There are days that I need to know God as the good shepherd. I need to be reminded that I am wired to hear his voice and he hears mine. There are days in life and in ministry when I just feel like I am flapping my wings. And yet God reminds me, be faithful to what I have called you because I am doing greater things through my body than you can ever imagine. And there are other days when I need to be reminded that like the vintner, if I will choose to persevere, if I will choose to abide, if I will choose to find that intimate place with God and stay there and submit to the work that he wants to do, that he is producing something that is beyond my wildest imagination. So my hope and my prayer for you is that you too will begin scouting the divine, discovering God in the agrarian images and metaphors that literally lace the pages of scripture, and that in the process you will experience the Holy Spirit blowing through your life, wiping away that dust, that you once again stand in wonder and awe of who our God is and all that he has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are a God who is not above getting your hands dirty in our world, that you would use barnyard animals and fresh fields in order to communicate your heart to us. Father, give us ears to hear you, eyes to see you, and hearts that beat passionately for you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.